Specialty Stories, session number 155. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited to have another amazing guest for you today, a physician sharing her specialty, what brought her to her specialty, what she loves about her specialty, and much more. Now, the specialty we're covering today is a little bit more unique. Not a lot of you know about this specialty. That's partly because the field of osteopathic medicine is still relatively new in this country, at least from a a, a knowledge standpoint and an awareness standpoint for the public and for you, the pre-med or medical student. And so I'm excited to have Dr. Kara Mintier on, who is going to talk about her journey into osteopathic medicine, including her specialty of academic neuromusculoskeletal and osteopathic manipulative medicine. Now, I talked to Dr. Mintier about her her choice of specialty, what brought her to it, and so much more. So strap in, hold on. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. I start the conversation by talking to Dr. Mentir about what drew her to osteopathic manipulative medicine to begin with. I was actually, well, I was thinking I was 18, but actually 17. I was a senior in high school. Um, I knew about it earlier than then um, because I got treatments. Mm -hmm. I ended up getting a bad concussion when I was 12. And then I started seeing um, a specialist for like my headaches and post-concussion problems, I think about 14. And then I continued seeing that doctor through high school. Um, I was a big athlete. I played three sports year round, all four years. And I ended up with a lot <laughs> of sports injuries. <laughs> um, so I'd normally, um, at the beginning and end of every season, I'd see her when I got injured. Mm-hmm. So my senior project was specifically on osteopathic medicine. They told us to pick something they were passionate about, um, shadow somebody and write a project on it. So my senior project was actually the difference between um, osteopathic physicians and allopathic physicians, and I shadowed her. During that experience was the first time I was like, oh man, this is so cool, because (laughs) I thought it was ahead of time, and I'd gotten treatments and the amount that I felt better with the treatments, but being on the other side of it was the first time of like, I actually want to learn to do this. And I can still remember to this day is that she was seeing somebody um, that had a car accident. And my job was just to kind of like witness, kind of stand around. And for once, she's like, you, you know, a little bit of anatomy. Go ahead and sit there and just put your hands on like his shoulders, kind of his chest area, and just just feel what's going on. And I'm just sitting there, 
And I start having this really like weird look on my face. And she looks at me and she goes, are you okay? Like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm not a doctor, but I don't think it's supposed to be doing this. Because <laughs> the ribs are supposed to go up and down. And his were going from side to side, almost like accordion. And she kind of like looked at me. I'm like, maybe I'm making something up, but this is what it feels like. And she goes, okay, trimmy sp- spots. <laughs> sits down, puts her hands there and goes, no, you're right. Okay, give me a second. <laughs> Does a treatment and goes, now come back and put your hands on it. And then when I did and I felt that like immediate change from like his literally his chest was going from right to left, then to actually doing its normal like up or down. I just kind of was like, oh, man, <laughs> I want to do this. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting. So many pre-med students I talk to have no idea what what osteopathic medicine is, D-O-O-M-M, neuromusculoskeletal medicine. And you're out here like, yep, this is like, I've been exposed to it. I've been getting treatments. I, I know it. What, what was that like for you going through the whole pre-med process, already having all of that exposure to osteopathic medicine? Um, it was, I, I don't want to say a little bit different or, um, difficult. Cause I, I talk to students now, um, and I interview students and a lot of them are like, I had no idea about like DO. I have not seen it. I don't know about manipulation. The first time I've seen it is when they come for an interview. Um, and as I was going through and I was telling like my pre-med advisors what I wanted to do. I kind of got scoffed at. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, they kind of looked at me as like, well, not that my grades weren't good, but I had some, a little more problems with like my MCATs. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, your MCAT's not a 34. So the fact that you want to go into osteopathic medicine, I guess is good. So you'll, you're, <laughs> you make it in there because you can't make it as an MD. Oh, and, and let me let me do some on the fly conversion for the pre med listening to the to this with the new MCAT score. So thirty four is roughly potentially like a five fifteen ish, I would say. So just some on the fly math. <sighs> yeah, yeah. So mine wasn't what they thought it would be, and so they're like, "You can't be an allopathic physician." And I was like, "Good, I don't want to be." <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thanks for telling me I can live my dream because. I don't want to be. Yeah. It's uh, so basically what you're saying is the, the, a lot of pessimistic pre-med advisors, unfortunately were still around back then too. Yeah. <sighs> and I, I guess it, from my understanding with history, it started back in like the eighties or nineties, which was, well, if you can't go to like MDB, a DO, um, and that is definitely not the case now. Um, the standards are the same and the amount of education. Sometimes I would say with the, all the extra like hands on, maybe the actual osteopathic curriculum is maybe a little bit harder for yeah. some people. Yeah. What was it about the manipulation and, and seeing that happen immediately that, that kind of led you to want to continue to explore that as you went through medical school because a lot of a lot of students even going through 
osteopathic medical school don't know that neuromusculoskeletal medicine is actually its own specialty, that that you need to go and be a pediatrician or a family practice doc and you you integrate OMM into your practice. They don't know that there's this whole specialty out there for them. How did how did you know that and figure that out and, and keep your, your eyes on that as you went through school? I think because I started even looking at it um, prior to like starting medical school, like creating my my plan of what I wanted to do. And I knew like um, my physician, who is now my mentor and very good friend, um, did family practice. And then she went from family practice and did manipulation to a full manipulation practice. So I saw from her what a full manipulation practice looked like and her path. Since then, they've created specific residencies that weren't even around when she was a student. It's something that is definitely newer to have just a OMM, NMM residency. Um, And before that point, you did just your regular specialty and you just practice and did manipulation as part of that practice. And you chose whether to do more or less of it. And then you just came a specialist because that's what you did all the time. And then they started to like create a board. And so currently now there are three different paths to become an OMM, NMM specialist, which is you can do any residency per se. Um, There's probably a few that uh, would not fit. And once you finish that residency, then you can do a plus one year, um, a plus one fellowship. When I was going through school, that was one of the big um, aspects of which path I wanted to take. So I thought about doing family medicine and doing this plus one fellowship year. And what stopped me from that is probably the start of my third year, I did three months of family medicine back to back. And by the end of three months, I was like, I can't do three years of this. <laughs> what was it about it that you were like, ah, no, thank you. Um, it's, no, no more sliding scales, <laughs> insulin sliding scales. You're like, ah, no, thank you. Yeah. The chronicity of like the diseases the like the routine the thing that it was just it seemed like the same thing over and over again with um just a different patient and like yeah like every patient is different and how you treat every patient is different but just the stuff you saw again diabetes diabetes blood pressure mm-hmm. emphysema smoking and then you're like Ooh, you got a sinus infection. Great. Something different. <laughs> um, but there are still some fun things um, that I got to do during like family practice time, um, doing some procedures. I helped a family practice doc do a, a vasectomy. And I'm like, hey, that's kind of cool um, to do that stuff kind of in the office. But still at the end, I was like, it just doesn't entice me. It doesn't sp- my interest it doesn't give me enough um variety or thought process to it but it, it sounds like also because you were so interested in and had been impacted by omm 
unless I'm wrong, uh, which correct me if I am wrong, it's not like you can go and do manipulation to improve blood sugar levels. Um, well, you can manipulate a lot of things. Um, I bet there's probably a study out there <laughs> trying to actually prove um, based off of like um, that you can actually affect blood sugar levels probably temporarily mm. um, by manipulation. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's not it's not standard of care. Yeah. And I, I knew, yeah, from from being a student that I wanted to do mostly a full uh, manipulation practice. Okay. So it was, do I take my efforts away to learn more th- um, treatment aspects that I will not be taking care of yeah. um, or spend more time doing the manipulation? Yeah, makes sense. And so I could I could have gone either way. Um, and then there's also a few programs out there that are integrated. That yeah. it's not, you do all family practice and then you do a one year of manipulation, but you do four years and you're doing both simultaneously, like alternating months and you're seeing both family practice patients and um, manipulation patients. But I think currently there's only two or three of those programs in the country. Mm. Okay. And that's been even, I think there was one the year I applied. Yeah. What's one of the biggest myths or misconceptions that you're constantly trying to dispel for neuromusculoskeletal medicine or OMM? Could probably be a a full podcast. I'm just just trying to think of like, um, (laughs) I'm not a glorified chiropractor. Yeah. Talk talk Um, about that briefly, because a lot of people think that chiropractor chiropractic medicine and OMM, it's the same thing. Where, where do you draw that line? And I've talked to different chiropractors and patients, um, about that. And, um, it, it's, it's a hard line because it also, uh, is different between like physicians and chiropractors, um, of which type of chiropractor you're talking to. Cause I know some chiropractors that are very good, um, are more like they like to be a doctor and do more family practice, also medicine as well as part of that. But I think one of the main differences is that chiropractors only um, work on more articular problems. And that's specifically when I'm talking about articular like joints, like spinal joints, shoulder, and any not even doing shoulder joints, but mainly localized just in um, the main spine, cervical, thoracic, and lumbar. Some will do some sacrum and SI, but that's where they stay. Yeah. Where, especially as like manipulation, um, I do, I can literally manipulate anything from head to toe um, and different layers depending on what I'm trying to work on. So I do that cracking or popping that chiropractors do. But it's like one of like 10 or 12 different types of techniques that I do and that I teach students how to do. Um, and I can work on the muscle layer. I can work on the fascial layer. I can work on the periosteal layer. I can do visceral techniques. I can work 
on cranial and cranial dura and all those attachments and the nervous system and vasculature. Yeah, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Yeah. And you, you have the anatomy and physiology understanding uh, of the whole body and everything else to, that goes along with it, potentially, that, that without knowing the chiropractic uh, medicine side of what their education looks like. But I'm assuming a little bit more in depth through uh, osteopathic medical school. Um, yeah. So, and I think they still do like the anatomy and physiology is just like their focus. So there, yeah. I think they're a little bit more focused and I would still say that there's some, um, osteopaths that are very focused into what would be direct techniques that are similar to chiropractic and then don't go into the other modalities and realms. Yeah. And the, it, it's a variation. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot comes down to what you're interested in and what you want to explore and, and do eventually. What, um, what do you think are good skills or traits that lead to someone being a good neuromusculoskeletal medicine physician? Besides the anatomy and physiology puzzles, I, and it's part of the reason why I like, you know, manipulation is that if you are going and you want a step-by-step if I see this, I do that. This is definitely not um, the specialty for them. And it's something that i talking to um, some students, they get the most frustrated in because they're like, what is the next correct step? And I'm like, it depends. And that's the hardest thing to tell a student <laughs> or anybody that, well, it depends and there's no one correct answer of what you do next. Mm -hmm. And so each time like I see a patient, I have to start through the same process. Even when I see the same patient, each time I see them, I I take into account what I've done before, but then I start that process over again. And each time it's a puzzle. Like what what happened? What happened to your body? Is it in the same manner that it was before did it change you know is, is something better is there something else new what have you been doing and talking about like with a patient through their history and what my hands feel and sometimes trying to figure out what is the key thing that's going on that's causing everything mm-hmm. and it is a massive puzzle of working through the anatomy, the physiology, the history, and adding on the palpation component that you don't know until you actually feel what the tissues are doing. Yeah. Because there are times when I've talked to a patient, they're like, I have low back pain. These are my symptoms. I'm like, okay, I got this. Okay, lay down. And then I put my hands on them and I go, nope, I don't got this. (laughs) What is your body doing? And then I have to go back and rethink everything I thought I knew based on what their body is actually doing. So every patient is different. And every time I see a patient, a lot of times it's different. Because if it's not, I'm like, what do you keep doing that puts you back into this position? Because I want you to stop it. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's very interesting. So let's talk about the the types of patients that you see. How how does someone come to see a neuromusculoskeletal medicine specialist? And a lot of times, like, I don't require referrals, but a lot of people come to me from referrals from physicians that know what I do, or actually family or friends. Mm. Usually they've complained and they're like, oh man, you got to see this person and, you know, give it a try. And I have a lot of patients that come in, they go, I don't know what you do. I just told to come here. And I have seen, I have treated everybody from my youngest patient has been hours old to in their 90s. Mm. It is, and that is also, it's the variety that I am seeing um, babies that have had difficult birth that are now having trouble latching, they're colicky, the parents are not sleeping, they're not gaining weight, and they're they're not doing well. And having kids myself, I have a soft spot for kids and parents that are not sleeping. <laughs> and giving them that that treatment um, that can help even long term where they're going to end up with like chronic ear infections or speech problems or um, developmental delays due to these restrictions. It just gives them that jump in life and makes everything just if you can get it early it makes the biggest difference with them and then also with their parents too as well yeah what does a typical and day or week look like for you right now working from home different yeah. my my optimal schedule was with working at the school i usually had meetings on mondays i was teaching lab um, the majority of afternoons, I OMM had one lab. OMM lab, yep. specifically at um, the medical school. Yep. I had one full day of clinic of seeing my own patients. And then I also rotated in as an attending at the local hospital for their plus one program, working with the residents um, so that they um, could do that plus one year for their specialty and seeing hospital patients. And that was definitely um, the spark to my week sometimes. Let's talk about that briefly, because I, I think potentially a lot of students may be interested in in what you say, but they'll assume that that OMM and, and NMM is is mostly going to be all outpatient. Is there a role for for you for inpatient medicine? There is a big role for inpatient medicine. It's a lot of times the problem is insurance companies and administration not understanding um, the impact that it does have. Um, and there's been multiple studies to show how beneficial it is, um, the decrease in antibiotic use, um, patients getting out um, a day or two earlier than patients that did not have OMT, um, a decrease in um, post-surgical complications 
So there's specific techniques to specifically do on surgery patients after they get out of surgery to help them so that they don't get the pneumonia and the post-op ileus um, and the swelling uh, on that. So when I was doing hospital patients, we'd see some post-surgery patients. We'd see some of the new babies born. Occasionally, we'd see the mothers helping them induce labor and post-labor. We saw inpatient psych patients that were um, in the locked ward, usually for you know weeks or months. And so we'd see them uh, on occasion help with chronic pain issues that may be um, leading to more difficulty with their mental health. Yeah, a lot of a lot of different things. That's what I said. That's you name it, then you can think it. Yeah, that's interesting. What does call look like for an OMM specialist? I'm assuming probably not a lot of urgent things that you have to come in in the middle of the night. No. So in all actuality, I do not take call. Um, it is a mostly like eight to five job. Mm. You know, Monday through Friday, there are certain physicians, um, certain OMM people that only work um, three or four days a week. Nice. And uh, yeah, there. If it's if it's emergent enough to call in the middle of the night, the answer is go to the ER. <laughs> it's always um, it's always the answer. Because <laughs> if it's something that bad, then the likelihood is I shouldn't be manipulating it. Yeah. You need actual like other medical care that I should not be providing. Yeah. Uh, the counterpart to that, and it's only happened a very few times, and it's usually the day or two after. Sometimes when you do manipulation treatments, you can have problems post-treatment, depending on what you're doing. So I've had patients that have problems with like vertigo or seizures that the treatment is supposed to help. Um, those conditions, and occasionally you can um, actually make them worse temporarily. Hmm. So the few calls that I've got is usually the next day where I usually, I, then I can have a patient that goes, I am still dizzy. I can't get up. I feel like I'm going to vomit. You know, this is, this is not good. This is worse than usual. And then a few times then I say, okay, urgently come into the clinic. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Now, you you had lots of interesting roles in medical education, both from the medical school side of things and from the residency side of things. What does the, the residency path look like for someone who wants to practice neuromusculoskeletal medicine? And... What do you mean specifically by that? That path? like what what is what does the residency look like? What are students or residents doing at that point in their journey? And that I guess would depend on if you're doing a the integrated versus just the full residency versus the plus one, um, and it would depend on where what hospital or school the program is associated with. So if the residency is associated more with a medical school, as a resident, um, as I did uh, mine with uh, Texas, I had to give lectures and lab. 
on top of my normal residency duties on a regular basis. Um, I have other colleagues that went to other programs that weren't associated with um, a school. And that was just something that they did not have to do. And they spent more time in clinic. There are programs that are purely more clinic-based. And then there are other programs that are more hospital-based. And that is... I guess, what you're looking like. Um, those programs have changed since I've gone through. Um, and as you, if you're wanting to do this, is to look at those programs individually and see what they're offering. Are they offering, how much hospital experience are they offering? And I would recommend students find a place that is offering um, in-hospital experience because the hospital OMT, how you treat a very acutely ill patient is significantly different than the 30 to 45 minutes you spend with a clinic patient. But if you never want to work in the hospital, you that may be something that you don't want to miss. If you want to do more teaching, doing a program that's more associated with a school that gives you that ability. Um, so when I went to school, um, I had a lot of pretty much eight, you know, eight to five seeing patients every 30 minutes besides the, I think, two afternoons that I um, worked with the first and second year medical students with lab and lectures. And then I had a didactic period that varied between reading chapters or creating presentations, that educational part of any residency that you're supposed to do. Yeah. What do you look for for someone to match into NMM? Passion. That, you know, finding, you know, someone who's like, why... Do you know why do you want to to go into that? Because unfortunately, it's I've heard some people like I want to go into OMM because I don't want to do the doctor stuff, and I'm like, you don't lose that on a regular patients. I'm still checking patients' blood pressure. I'm still using um, my medical knowledge. Um, Understanding is, is this something that I should be manipulating? Is this something um, more problematic? Um, and referring patients on. Um, I have had, even just recently, I had a patient come with me um, to show up that was referred for TMJ. And I saw them like, this does not seem like TMJ. And did some further evaluation. We sent for an MRI and they had a brain tumor. Mm. So I, I, I really makes me cringe because it's also the Sigma that I feel like sometimes people that do manipulation of like, Oh, well you don't do any of that doctor stuff. It's like, no, we do that too. And more, we do stuff that, you know, most doctors look at and they'd be like, hmm, I don't know, your labs are fine. I don't see anything wrong. Your imaging is fine. 
yeah, you're having this pain. Here's a pain pill. You know, that's what I can do. I'll refer you to a, spe- a specialist, you know, for pain or management or GI or neuro. And they go through all these different specialties and really like it, it's something deeper down. It's structural in nature. But you don't have imaging that can show those structural changes that people are feeling. People are not crazy. They are feeling these things. There's just no lab test or imaging that's going to show yeah. what it is without putting your hands on them. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things that I wish we taught more, all, all medical students, we taught more of of just because we don't have a test to to test something or uh, a picture to see something doesn't mean that the patient's not experiencing. It doesn't mean that there's not something there. We just don't know what it is. We can't see it. We can't test for it. So it's, it's a hard thing that students typically will just go back to the patient and go, sorry, nothing's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so that sense of palpation, it takes a while to develop. Yeah. Um, and the students get frustrated because they come through and they feel things. I'm like, yeah. And there's this over here and they're like, I don't, I don't feel it. Or now I feel it, but why did I miss it? I'm like, Hey, I've been doing this like a long time. (laughs) Takes practice. So even with the residents that they're going to soon be specialists, I'm like, these are things I have learned because I have failed multiple times and I've sat there with patients and I've tried and go, I don't know, but let's give this a try and work through problems and, you know, talk to patients about being honest. I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on with you. But I would like to give it a try. I would like to see if there's anything I can do that's going to change your symptom. Yeah. And there are times that I do see patients that come in for one thing. And maybe the thing they originally came in for, I did not, I cannot address. And I can just be honest, but I usually give it a try. But other times they come up and then they'll say, well, that didn't change. But you know, all these chronic other issues I was having that I just learned to live with, they're all gone. So I'm happy. Yeah. I was like, well, good. At least we got somewhere. (laughs) For the future primary care doctor listening to this pediatrician, family practice doc, whether they're MD or DO, what do you want them to know about what you do as a neuromusculoskeletal medicine specialist? I think to understand that I do more than manipulate patients with injury and pain, that there is such a variety of conditions um, that can be affected and the amount of people that actually probably should refer and can benefit from manipulation. And so my thing for them is be find your, your local people. We're, we're scattered around the area, but find find your local people and figure out, you know, who they're accepting, what do they specialize in. There's some uh, OMM specialists that just do pediatric patients, other ones that specialize in traumatic brain injury, and then other ones like myself that are like, you name it, just descend it and we'll see what we can do. Um, and just don't be afraid to refer, you know, to an OMM specialist. Yeah. And even I've had some 
family practice doctors that do do a little bit of manipulation and they try and they're like, well, it didn't help. So we're not going to refer you on. I'm like, there's still a big difference of the level of knowledge for somebody that does it just occasionally versus somebody that does it on a regular basis. So there is still like 50% or probably better patients that, yeah, just need a little bit of OMT that a normal, you know, family practice, internal medicine, peds physician can learn those, you know, minor techniques to have big benefits in their patients. And then there's going to be their patients that even I'm going to sit there and go, okay, I'm going to have to think about this for a while. Yeah. What would you go back and tell yourself about this whole journey about being a a neuromusculoskeletal medicine specialist? Obviously you've had early and often exposure, but now having been in the field, having done this for a while, what would you go back and, and tell your early self? Um, probably understand the business of medicine better. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there is another aspect, and it's usually also what drives some people away um, from the specialty is currently the amount of insurance, um, not giving payments for the procedure what does it look like to do private practice? A lot of people are trying to not do private practice due to the stress and all the other logistics that have to do that. Um, I did private practice for a little bit um, and being young and dumb (laughs) made some business mistakes that um, have kind of like financially um, cost me. But I think that didn't change, like, my passion or what I did with patients. It's just um, caused of where I ended up. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a neuromusculoskeletal medicine specialist? The variety and the, um, the gratitude of um just well i guess gratitude is not the right word to seeing the benefit that it has and the way that it changes my patient's life because that's also the other thing that um really helped me is that um the other part of the story is way back after, you know, 18 and um, the job sharing experience, I actually got sick my senior year of high school and I got misdiagnosed and I had a lot of issues. I was an 18 year old with interstitial cystitis that had to pee every 20 minutes and no one knew what to do for me besides give me Vicodin and send me to school. And the amount that, um, like I said, my physician um, and now mentor, like, worked with me to help me gain my quality of life back, um, to as well when I said, this is the type of physician I want to be. I don't want to be the one 
that goes, mm, here's a pain pill, you know, try to live with it. Um, because I was a patient on the other end of that. And as for like one of my goals was to change somebody's life for the better like it did me. What do you like the least? Patients that don't bathe before they come in. <laughs> Probably the number one, I guess, problem I have with some of my patients of having to sit down and talk to them about the state of being before they um, come in and be treated. Um, besides the fact of I have allergies to um, different types of smoke. Mm. So I have to tell my patients, please don't smoke right before the visit, cigarettes or marijuana, because yep. I will not be able to finish the visit. Yeah, because you're getting pretty up, up close and personal with these patients. So it's here all over, whatever dander smells, stuff they have on them, it's, it's on you. You got to be very up close and personal and very touchy feely. And I probably, with the amount of time I also spend with these patients, I sometimes know more about them than their family members. Yeah. They divulge things. So I am sometimes like a counselor um, as they're working through all the issues that they're going through. And that's also a part. Um, and I, do sometimes create some really good um, connections with my patients. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, to clarify, I mean, there, there are lots of reasons why someone may not bathe or may not smell good, whether it's cultural living situations. We're not making light of people who, who don't bathe, but you know, a lot of people just don't know. They, they, and they have to be educated on it. They, they do. And I think there's a difference between like when I was in medical school, I actually played rugby and part of working on my manipulation was after the rugby games, I would treat uh, members of my team. Mm. So, I mean, there's a difference between there was I'm like, well, I'm smelling too and I'm getting up close and personal. <laughs> so you have to smell me and I have to smell you. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, is a little bit different um, than, than that. Um, it's hard to say, like said, what else I don't like besides um, the people that also you would like to help that do to um, their, I don't want to say personality, um, but the way that they view things, it makes it very hard to um, get them past their current issues. Yeah. And so then those are just people you can't help. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's plenty of studies out there about trust and belief and uh, the, the nocebo effect being... Uh, and placebo being uh, very powerful. So they, they need to be able to believe in what you're doing and teaching and what you're having them do. So I'm going to guess if you had to do it all over again, you would still be a neuromusculoskeletal specialist. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have, you know, changed a thing. My path has, you know, led me here and I, I love what I do. Um, it, 
it rela- it relaxes me. It makes me happy. Uh, like the end of the day, there are days that yeah, I'm maybe physically and mentally exhausted after seeing patients, but it's not out of frustration. I the um, anger I see um, with some like physicians and just that certain things can kind of like suck the life out of you. Um, and this doesn't, it just, it may, it makes me feel, um, like more alive, just a benefit that I have a role that I'm doing something, um, of benefit for somebody else. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this now interested in neuromusculoskeletal medicine? So for the med students, the one thing that I normally say is be willing to try and be, and it is okay to fail because a lot of what you do, there is no, like I said, correct answer. There's things you can do that are absolutely wrong that you shouldn't do. Don't hurt your patient. But be willing to try. And what I find with like so many students that they feel not confident in their skills enough to even try, that they don't realize it's that trying that builds up your skill to be able to actually have the benefit you want to give to your patients. So don't be afraid to put your hands on somebody and try to make a little change is better than not trying at all. All right, so there you have it. A great conversation with Dr. Kara Mintier, an academic neuromusculoskeletal and osteopathic manipulative medicine specialist. Now, that's a mouthful. It sounds interesting. I loved talking to Dr. Mentier. I actually talked to her after we recorded. I said, I want to go see someone like you locally. And so she gave me some good resources to try to find a physician who specializes in what she specializes in because I have some shoulder issues from back playing baseball when I was younger. And uh, I, I love and really believe in the power of soft tissue manipulation and so much more. So if you're interested in checking out more, I couldn't find a specific society for this. Just go check out osteopathic.org, which is the AOA's website. I hope you have a great rest of the week. I'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories when I talk to Dr. Bartfield about obesity medicine. 